Released in 1941, this film, co-written, starring, and was the directorial debut for Orson Welles, tops the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movies list in 1998 and the updated list in 2007. Many critics still hold this film to be the greatest film of all time. Today on You Never Seen It, we have Citizen Kane. Welcome to You've Never Seen It, an audio podcast where I, your host, Allison Salamone, am on a journey to never have to hear these four words again. Joining me today is someone who is a beast, wink, wink, when it comes to movie trivia. You can read his reviews over on The Wrap. He also co-hosts the critically acclaimed network, and he has a pretty stellar soap business. Please welcome to You've Never Seen It, Mr. William Bibiani. Hi, Bibs. Hi. Yes, thank you for throwing all the roses. Thank you. The You're thorns welcome. hurt a little bit, but it's nice. Uh, you know. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited you're here. I've. It's so funny when I was when I keep telling people that I'm recording episodes and I'm doing this whole project, and I they ask who do I have lined up or who do I have coming on, and they say, oh, I'm going to be recording with William Bibiani, and they say, oh, what are you doing? I go sit and I tell them Citizen Kane. They all go. Oh, that's a great guess for that one. <laughs> and I'm like, good, he chose it. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered they have any idea who I am. Honestly, that's really, really nice. You know, you we try. Um, but yeah, no, I'm so excited you're here. Um, first and foremost, I guess, even kind of before getting into the real meat and potatoes of all of this stuff, um, what is kind of your background and what was it that got you into movies and doing what you're doing and why yeah. Citizen Kane? Well, uh, that's a good question. And, you know, it's a long story. I'm, I'm 40 years old. I could take you through the whole process. But um, in a nutshell, you know, I was always fascinated by film and television growing up as a child. Uh, but I was interested in kid stuff. You know, I was watching Spider-Man and I was watching X-Men cartoons and such. And um, it, it got to the point where every week we would go rent movies at our local a movie hut. It was called The Warehouse. It was spelled with a W-H-E-R-E. Where? The Warehouse. The Warehouse. So how, what, love a good play on words. I know. Sadly, <laughs> sadly long since gone, but it was a pretty major chain for a while there. And um, I would always rent this kid stuff. And then uh, finally my mom, bless her heart, uh, got really sick and tired of having to sit through Rude Dog and the Dweebs for the third time. So she was like, okay, I'll make you a deal. You can rent this video next time if this time we watched some of my movies and we rented uh let's see we rented strangers on a train balford hitchcock we rented uh, mrs miniver academy Warden for best picture and we rented citizen kane and i was like nine or ten and what I never, a movie for a nine or ten year old it's a hell of a thing but let me tell you something i watched it as a nine slash ten year old and I was absolutely enchanted and fascinated. I loved every minute of all three of those movies. Those are all great films. And I didn't really go back to renting a lot of like kids' cartoons for a while. I mean, I have nothing against children's cartoons, but I started really sort of uh, uh, chomping my way through the warehouse's classic cinema section. Um, 
and that's kind of where it started. I just all of a sudden had this big crash course in classic film. And I realized that all the things that I had loved had this precedent, had all of these uh, incredible movies that came before and inspired them directly or indirectly. All of the uh, exciting motion picture like uh, techniques and styles that I was really enjoying had begun decades and in some cases over a century before we got to know them. And so from there, there was no looking back or rather there was no looking. Well, I was always looking back. I was looking at film history. <laughs> but from there, there was no there was no going back to just casually consuming movies. I was absolutely riveted by the entirety of the medium. And that was that basically. I went to film school, uh, kicked around the industry for a little bit. And then I finally realized that what I really enjoyed doing was discussing film, sort of introducing film to people who uh, were new to it or didn't understand the full context of history or maybe looked down on certain genres and I could find a way to hopefully introduce it to them so that they would be excited about it and appreciate it. And um, yeah, so covering something like Citizen Kane is really important to me, uh, not just personally, because I care very deeply about this movie. I've seen it many times and it's one of my favorites, but um, I think it's also really, really important for film critics. And I don't think enough of us actively do this uh we need to be reintroducing films of the past to people in the present and a lot of movies in the past don't hold up as well as we might like because attitudes were different uh representation was lacking to say the least uh some of them the one movies that are considered there had been considered classics for many decades are almost unwatchable now because the attitudes are in them. But there is definitely a large supply of great movies that are absolutely entertaining uh, and enchanting today that I think anyone can appreciate now with at the very least, just a little bit of context. And I think it is a responsibility of a film critic to help people discover those movies and if those movies aren't like readily accessible or people watch them and go i don't understand why that was a big deal we need to be able to explain here's why that was the coolest thing in the universe and here was how that directly connects to the things you love um so i think that it's kind of a solemn responsibility but i also love doing it and so here we are talking about citizen kane a movie which a lot of people love and i know a few people find a little impenetrable and i get it and i'm here to help i can definitely see where the divisiveness falls. I, I'm really excited about doing this project and, and doing these shows and talking about movies, especially movies like Citizen Kane, because of with myself, I'm surprised I haven't watched it sooner considering my favorite film of all time is Casablanca. So I nice. love classic films. Um, and it, obviously a little bit different <laughs> in tone different between films. the two, but um, I just, I, I, it's one of those movies I've heard about my entire life. And it's always been either like a joke or just gets brought up for different things. Or anytime you bring up Orson Welles, it's either people bringing up Citizen Kane, at least in my circle, or War of the Worlds, yeah. the the radio show that made everyone think the world was ending in, in 1938 because <laughs> he was so good. Yeah. So I, I'm glad I'm finally getting to see it. I also kind of wish I saw it sooner because I feel like there was a little bit tainted for me because I know that there was something about rosebud so i spent the whole movie trying to figure out what it was and then ah. i got the reveal and i was like oh okay. well i mean that it's not like it's not like the sixth sense where it completely right. like reinter it, it should thrilled. reinterpret what you've seen before but it's a thematic reveal it's not like yeah. a big plot thing um i think citizen kane is sometimes a victim of its own success um 
when the movie came out, it was not a success. Uh, it was a thinly veiled uh, biographical picture about William Randolph Hearst. And it combined right. him with a few other uh, similar monarchs of industry uh, from the era. And uh, William Randolph Hearst was in control of a major media empire. And because William Randolph Hearst thought the film was not very flattering to him, and it is not, uh, he basically almost got it, almost prevented it from being released at all. And then he refused to let any of his papers even mention its existence. So it barely made an impact when it came out. It, it got some good reviews. It won a Academy Award, but it wasn't considered like a, a popular choice at the time. Yeah. And it wasn't until about 10 years later uh, that uh, the French film critic community started sort of reassessing some of the older American movies and reappraising a film like Citizen Kane as a classic. And only then were people really revisiting it and giving it, I think it's proper due. But from that point on, uh, thanks in large part to the Sight and Sound poll, uh, which is every 10 years they uh, invite film critics from all over the world to pick their picks for the greatest films of all time. And we're coming up on a new one. They usually do it on the twos. So I'm really looking forward to it. Nice. Uh, but almost every year since that poll existed, Citizen Kane has topped that list. And as a result, it has developed this uh, uh, reputation as being the greatest film of all time. But the problem with being called the greatest film of all time is that enough people in the audience are going to approach it as, uh, oh, yeah, what do you got? You know, yeah. like, show me. Because we have in our head an idea of what greatness looks like. And it's not mm -hmm. necessarily exactly what Citizen Kane is laying down. Another film that I feel has the same problem is The Exorcist, which mm -hmm. is often called the scariest movie of all time. And when I was a kid, I hadn't seen it yet because it was like, it's very R-rated. And yeah. I had kept getting it built up. It's the scariest movie ever. It's the scariest movie ever. And then I finally saw it when I was in high school and I was like, okay, I get it. But it wasn't I'm until- also Okay, yeah. I was I've, I'm I was raised Roman Catholic, so ah. it was uh, it was nonfiction. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you're bringing something different to it. It actually wasn't until I was an older adult revisiting The Exorcist that I realized that the true horror of The Exorcist isn't Regan's like head spinning around mm -hmm. or or any of the violence. It's the true horror is it's it's a secular horror film. It's the idea of we're living in an increasingly secular time, but what if science can't explain anything? And what if ultimately the truth that we have to deal with is that faith is real, but it's not always happy. And in fact, all of the bad things about faith are true too. And what if we had to reckon with that? And as an adult, as a mature person who is actually struggling to think about how I feel about life, the universe and everything, that is legitimately terrifying. Mm -hmm. But as a teenager, I wasn't really wrestling with that stuff. So I really kind of wasn't ready for it yet. And I feel like Citizen Kane is another one of those things where if you're not open to being on this movie's wavelength and if you don't appreciate where cinema was at the time it came out and all of the things this movie did that were extremely groundbreaking and that we take for granted nowadays, um, it's easy to look at Citizen Kane and go, that's pretty good. Or even yeah. maybe I don't get it. Uh, and I think it's, it's disappointing because you're missing out on something that I, a movie that I think is not only just exciting, I think it is funny. I think it has, it's got everything. It's got romance, it's got tragedy, it's got politics, it's got a musical number, uh, it's got a mystery, mm -hmm. it's got everything. It has um, some great, gr some great lines in it too. I think one of my, one of the ones that has really stuck out to me hmm. is when he's interviewing Susan, when she finally lets him mm -hmm. um, interview her and they're, they're at the, her club that she owns. 
and talking about her opera career and, and being forced into that. And I actually wrote it down in my notes. Um, oh, when he, when, when she tells him, um, what do you think he built that opera house? Who, do, or what do you think he built that opera house for? I didn't want it. I didn't want to sing. It was his idea. Everything was his idea except my leaving him. Yeah. And then she says that line and then you see the scene where she leaves him and you just spent an hour and a half watching this guy get the world thrown on his feet with mm -hmm. everything. And it's the first time that someone tells him no. Yeah. And imagine going through your whole life, which makes that next scene where he's tearing apart the room that much more, I think, powerful in yeah. the sense. And then now looking, it's definitely a movie where I look back on it and kind of go back in and I'm excited to kind of research and learn about because things are hitting me more the longer I think about it. It's a movie the that more definitely, I think about it. every single time I watch Citizen Kane, I notice something different. That's how impeccably structured it is. And there's a lot of lines of dialogue that sound good the first time you watch them. And then you realize later on that they connect to like five other scenes. And it's only when you're rewatching it that you've realized the full impact of it. Like the, the line you were just talking about. Uh, there's a line very early in the movie uh, the movie begins with the death of Charles Foster Kane, and then we get this big uh, newsreel montage uh, where right. we see all of Charles Foster Kane's life laid out as quickly as it possibly can be because it's really complicated. And then over the course of the film, our reporter protagonist interviews a lot of people and we get a more rich understanding of all of those events. Uh, this is a technique that James Cameron would use in Titanic, where at the beginning of Titanic, they just show you, okay, so here's where it hit the iceberg and here's... Uh, how it broke down here and that's when this happened and then it fell down here and then the rest of the movie is okay yeah that's what happened but that's not what it was like right so it's all about giving you the full story and then giving you the details and one of the things they give you in that is a line with charles foster kane uh where or this is actually i think in the the diary shortly afterwards but um he tells the the bank manager who raised him you know if i if i hadn't been rich i might have been a great man yeah and I think that's it. The movie is very, very much about wealth. The movie is very, very much about uh, sort of the American form of capitalism, where like we view the acquisition of things as a symbol of our greatness. I mean, look at how we mm -hmm. look at someone like Donald Trump. He literally has a gold hotel. Like some right. people look at that and go, wow, what an amazing titan of industry he is. And what Citizen Kane argues is that that's someone who is desperately trying to fill a void that is missing. Something is deeply, permanently, and desperately missing in their life. If you have to build your own, you know, private zoo to try to fill it. And that is a great American tragedy. The, the idea that you could fill the void in your heart, in your soul, you know, the, the upbringing you didn't have, the love you never acquired with stuff that you own to the extent that even in your relationships, you don't truly connect to people you try to purchase them right and then once you purchase them you expect them to do what you want them to do mm -hmm. and then once they act like human beings and they act they expect you to actually interact with them as a human being you realize that you can't do that all you know is money right yeah no yeah um, and it's so it always blows my mind to watching these movies and seeing how much how how it still holds up to this day with that idea of american capitalism and these now billionaires that just you, you, like i feel like 
a now version of like Charles Foster Kane is Jeff Bezos when like he went into space and was like, I want to thank all of my employees who made this happen. Like, yeah, your employees that you pay maybe minimum wage <laughs> so you can use your wealth to go do this, yeah. but they appreciate your thank you. Like, yeah. like what you Charles Foster Kane is an enormous hypocrite. He uses his platform at a newspaper uh, to try to uh, fight for the everyman without ever, and he fully acknowledges he's rich. Half of the yeah. companies that he's railing against saying that they're hurting the working man, he is a personal investment in. Right. And but he and he sees no problem with that whatsoever because he has no full context. He has no greater understanding of the people than that. All he knows is that when he was a child, he was taken away from his family and given to a bank to to raise, which is a strange plot point if you think about it. It's almost like the Truman Show, yeah. where this is a human being who, when his mother accidentally. Uh, 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 was accidentally acquired like the largest gold mine in America or something like that. I think it's like the sixth largest in the world, they say. Yeah. Um, her first thought is, uh, it sucks here. And his father is apparently uh, abusive. Mm -hmm. She seems rather emotionally cold, but it's hard to say. A lot of people throw the blame on Charles Foster Kane's life on his mother because Agnes Moorhead plays her as a very cold person. But if you pay attention to that scene, it's entirely possible that she's just trying to save him from an abusive family situation. Right. Well, and even so, the, the, he, but the he doesn't father, know that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And the father was like, "No, we can't send them away." And then he sees like how much money they're getting, and he's like, "Okay, yeah. fine." Was, and then when bags are ready, and when Charles Foster Kane does it as a little kid, says. um, I don't want to go with this bank guy. And he shoves him away. Like, you know, you're taking away me away from my parents. Uh, the, the dad's first thought is he needs a good thrashing. And mom says, well, that's why we're giving him away. So what we have is Charles Foster Kane. This is almost like a fable. If you think about it, where here's what would it be like if, since we worship money so much in this country and we're thinking about banks as these like great mighty institutions, what if a bank raised a person? And then that person turned out to be a human being who, like any person who has like domineering parents, is likely to lash out at them. But all they know is money, so they do it with money, and they end up becoming a massive hypocrite and a lonely person. Right. Or and like in, where he thinks he's like sticking to him by saying, "Um, yeah, I know I have all this wealth now, but I just want to do. I'm, I'm going to take over the newspaper because yeah. I think it'd be fun to run a newspaper." And then he just goes in, and then he does shady that whole that whole yellow journalism mm -hmm. on top of it just to keep showing just how terrible of a person and indeed that's is. something we're still dealing with today the idea of we're using the mask of journalism to create a form of entertainment which ostensibly has principles and i think you could argue that at times in his life charles foster kane thinks he has principles but all he really cares about is it's not even selling newspapers he wants to be seen as synonymous with that newspaper. He wants everyone in America to buy him and buy into him, which is why the first paper, he like has them redo it over and over again. And then finally, what's the, what's the headline news on opening day? It's a statement of principles, which he will eventually defy. And his best right. friend's going to send him torn up in a letter because he doesn't actually have them. He has the image of them, but he isn't actually willing to hold up to them. I mean, how shitty is it that yeah. his best friend becomes obviously becomes a drunkard because of, of everything yeah. that's going on yeah. and then has to write this review mm. about his best friend's wife's terrible singing. Yeah. Right. And then Kane comes in, takes it from him while he's drunk and then finishes it 
to still smear his own wife. Yeah, I love that scene. That is such a complicated scene because on one hand, it's very, very clear that, you know, if this is his second wife, it's someone that he was caught in a love affair with. Mm -hmm. And now he's kind of forced to be with her to save face because it ruined his political career. Uh, and uh, there's that whole bit where they're like caught in love nest with singer mm -hmm. and singers in quotes. Yep. And he's trying to remove those quotes. So he's trying to legitimize her. So to legitimize himself. So he buys her an opera house. The, Bernard Herman makes a whole opera, by the way, that's an original opera for the movie. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, yeah. And it turns out she's, she's fine, but she's not an opera singer. That's a, that's a huge ask of anybody. That's really hard to be an opera singer. And he knows it's terrible. Mm -hmm. He knows it's terrible. He knows she's not good, but he's the only one like clapping like forever, like afterwards. Like he can't bring himself to, and then he must. And then when he sees that Jedediah was actually like theoretically, he shouldn't be doing it at all because he knows her husband. Like as mm -hmm. a critic, you should recuse yourself if you can. But <laughs> that's yellow journalism. No one gives a shit at that paper. But no such thing as conflict of interest. <laughs> no, right? But like he's he's writing. A review and he's being he's being harsh but no harsher than any other theater critic of the day and yeah. like theater critics were merciless in the 20s and 30s if you read like the the reviews of like dorothy parker or robert benchley or alexander wolcott they were if you think critics are mean now you have no idea what it used to be like <laughs> they were brilliant they could close the theater they could close a play in a day it was amazing yeah. a lot of power so he was writing the real review and he expected Charles Foster Kane to love his wife so much that he would actually protect her. And instead, he used Jedediah Leland's writing as an excuse to lash out and be cruel to his own wife. Now, ostensibly, it seems like Kane is like being ethical by writing the real review, but he's also being less of a person. It's a really complicated scene, and it's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of layers to it. It's also felt feels like he's blaming her mm -hmm. for something she didn't want to do. Yeah. But he, I built you this opera house. Mm -hmm. I got you the, the singing lessons. I've done all of this for you. And this is how you repay me by doing a terrible job. Yeah. So now I'm going to like, cause it's never, it's never his fault. The entire mm -hmm. movie, nothing is his fault. He refuses to accept that possibility. Yeah. He's doing, he's doing the best he can. And to be fair, he probably is. Yeah, he does not have the tools necessary to like emotionally. Like nowadays, he would please put him in therapy. But like, <laughs> he does not have the tools emotionally to deal with anything that isn't perfect and fawning over him. And yeah, it, it's interesting to me when uh, Charles Foster Kane meets Susan Alexander, and this is actually something I didn't notice until I'd seen the couple of the film a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, the moment when Charles Foster Kane meets Susan Alexander, it's totally by chance. He's sitting on the side, he's standing at the side of the road. A car splashes him with water and she laughs at him because it's a little silly. And what does he say he was doing? He was going to inspect some property from his family. If he had not met Susan Alexander, he would have looked at all of those boxes that we see at the end of the movie and he would have found Rosebud. Oh yeah. He was looking that day for some kind of a connection, a connection to a past for family because he was lonely. And instead he found Susan Alexander and she became his rosebud for a while. And he had to keep her and he had to protect her and he had to hide her from the world. This is mine. This is all mine. The world can't have her. And once the world knows that she exists, 
I have to put her out there. And it's only when she begs him and like almost dies, pushing herself so hard to yeah. be the songbird that he paid for that he realizes, okay, fine. Then we're going to imprison ourselves in a giant palace and I'm not going to let anyone else touch you. And he just, he doesn't know what to do. He can't do it. He can't help himself. And at the end, when she says she'll go away, it seems like for one second, his like actually his begging her to stay because he desperately needs her. She's almost going to go for it. And then he adds, you can't do this to me. And she's yes. like, no, this is not you being genuine. This is not you admitting frailty. This is you saying that I owe you something. Yes. And that was the last straw. And that realization, I think because she's, I think Susan's probably one of my favorite characters yeah. in this, in this whole film. She's great. Um, because I think she's one of those things, you know, she like said, like she was supposed to be the secret and she didn't want to hurt him and she just wanted to be loved by him. And it was all fine when she could have her own place and do her own thing. And I think that she loved independence enough to try to speak up. But when you're with someone who's that powerful mm. and you lose your voice and you get pushed to the point where you're trying to kill yourself so it can stop and like having to do all these things to watch her finally kind of get that moment of being like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. I was like, fuck. Yes. It's inspiring Susan. is what it is. It yeah. and, really and, is. And she doesn't end up great. She's unhappy. She she's, doesn't. She's an yeah. alcoholic, but she, at the very least she's, she's her own person now. And it's mm -hmm. weird. It's sad really, because she's still trying to make a living as a singer. And he's kind of tainted her. Yeah. He's tainted almost everyone he, he touched. Yeah. Uh, and it's really it's it's really really sad the one person that's funny the one person who the older i get the more i appreciate and respect as a character is mr bernstein mm -hmm. who was his business manager for many years uh and he's this you know old man with glasses and he has the speech in the movie it's my favorite speech in almost any movie uh and it really is i think the movie in a nutshell uh he's talking about rosebud and he has no idea what it is and he tries to explain to this young reporter because he's an old man uh, that you think it's going to be this important thing that's going to unlock his entire life. It's going to completely change everything. And I'll tell you a story about a time when I was on a ferry and on another ferry, I saw a girl with a white parasol and I thought she was the prettiest girl I've ever seen. I saw her for a second and we never talked. And that was the end of that. And not a day goes by that I don't think of her because that's what life is life is an acquisition of memory and sometimes things are super important to you and no one else will ever understand their significance. And that's what Rosebud ends up being. It's just a symbol of something he just had fleetingly. Mm -hmm. And I love Mr. Bernstein. I think Mr. Bernstein, Mr. Bernstein is one of the only people in this movie who actually gets out of it. Okay. Like he's doing okay. Financially. He seems reasonably well put together emotionally He's not, he doesn't seem to be lonely. Mm -hmm. He just, uh, he didn't get overly involved uh, with the shallow uh, billionaire man child. He was just there. He did his job and then he stayed out of it. Yeah. Yeah. The most, the most uh, uh, normal coming out. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. End, for sure. Um, and then kind of getting into the other aspects of this movie and what makes it so great and why people constantly talk about it because i always hear um or hear from some people who maybe don't like it as much that it's mm. a film nerd film because mm -hmm. of the different techniques that were used and oh. everything no. that kind of 
I, I'm watching. I was even watching. And I'm like, how does this look so like this movie came out the same at the same time that Casablanca came out, but these yeah, give or take scenes a couple years, yeah. are yeah. But these scenes are like the way that the focus is and the way that they shot it. I'm like, are they uh, like, did green screens exist back then? Like, how does this look so sharp? <laughs> in I mean, some cases, in some cases, the, the people forget this or maybe they don't think of it this way. Citizen Kane is a visual effect spectacular. It doesn't have monsters or lasers or anything like that, but it's full of a lot, a lot of composite shots of uh, matte shots. There's a lot of buildings that don't really exist, but people are like standing in a window and they painted it around them. It added a lot of production value. And these are things that are very commonplace today. When you look at like behind the scenes of something like Boba Fett or whatever the Marvel Cinematic Universe is doing, a lot of times they're shooting on a green screen. And that's not dissimilar to some of the stuff that Citizen Kane was doing in order to, and then we'll make it look bigger in, in post. It was all by design. Uh, Orson Welles was also very keen on making sure the movie wasn't photographed like everything was. Casablanca is a great movie and it's shot beautifully, but it's also shot somewhat conventionally. Michael Curtiz right. is, he's a great filmmaker, but he was a hit maker at the mm -hmm. time. He was the guy who did the adventures of Robin Hood. He was a guy who made crowd pleasers. He wasn't necessarily trying actively to push the art form as far as it could go the way that Orson Welles did. And a lot of credit needs to go to a cinematographer, Greg Toland. Uh, who sadly, I think, died in like the late 40s. He didn't have as long a career as he should have had. But he is arguably like one of the two or three greatest cinematographers who ever lived. Uh, almost all of his movies from that era look dramatically different from a lot of the other films just because he was much more interested in stark lighting. He was much more interested in interesting depths of field. Um, a lot of Citizen Kane is shot from very low angles. And at the time when Citizen Kane was made, a lot of movies didn't have a lot of low angles because a lot of the times you wouldn't see the, the ceilings of, of rooms because there was all on a soundstage and you could right. hide microphones and lights there. But Orson Welles wanted us to be looking up at these Titans. He wanted us to, he wanted the camera to represent not just a viewpoint, but also an interpretation of the events. So we get a lot of that in there. We get a lot of visual effects that are just trying to make everything look as dynamic as humanly possible. Um, the, uh, the depth of field is often there to sort of keep us uncertain about where we are. It's what it's a, a lot of the film is shot in what we call deep focus, where yeah. uh, what is in the foreground and what is in the background are both completely in focus, which requires a lot of light, especially at the time. So it's very, very difficult to pull off, but Another thing that I always appreciate about Citizen Kane is, and something that a lot of movies at the time did do, but a lot of them didn't, and very few movies seem to do today, is there's a really careful consideration of framing and like where the actors are standing. And oftentimes they're standing in sort of a pyramid motif with whoever is narrating this particular uh, chapter in the lower right corner. Um, it's a very particular film. These These shots do not happen by accident. And they're there to maximize the experience i feel like a lot of filmmakers are interested in a very minimalist experience you are there documentary feeling but orson wells was a maximalist filmmaker he wanted to be in your face he wanted you to know i'm in a movie right now i am feeling something completely unique to cinema and citizen kane it, it hides behind the simplicity of its story because it is as complicated as it is just the story of a guy who owned a newspaper it's not like you know yeah 
it's it's not gone with the wind and it's epic grandeur but uh and thankfully also not in its racism but uh <laughs> it's but it is but it is a visual effect spectacular and it's that way and it is incredibly particular in its shots and nothing in the movie was half-assed and i think that's something that we can all yeah. appreciate because too many movies are well yeah no for sure and looking back and like kind of like the research and stuff that i was doing leading up to this in and mm -hmm. seeing how he got to that point he got signed he got a contract from rko pictures that was unheard of unheard at of. the times yeah um he's getting two films that he has free reign to do whatever he wants as long as mm -hmm. it stays under budget we get mm -hmm. this amount you'll get this amount after that and he's never directed a movie in his life yeah he was to be fair he was to be fair the toast of broadway and right. he, people people overlooked that because you know those performances weren't filmed but for years orson wells and he's in his early 20s is doing things that people had like not never seen before on broadway he was doing uh he did a version of julius caesar that was set in contemporary fascist italy and it's my understanding that the the production design was all done with with uh spotlights there was no actual sets sounds fascinating um, he, I think he directed the first all black production of Shakespeare with Macbeth. Um, oh, wow. he, uh, he was seen as a major force in American culture. And indeed he, that translated to his work on the radio. He would, uh, rehearse a play, uh, in, in, in on Broadway. And then because he found out you don't actually have to be sick to be in an ambulance, he would hire an ambulance to drive him across New York to a radio station <laughs> and he would get there with seconds to go. And Agnes Moorhead would like hand him a thing. Like uh, we're doing the shadow tonight. You're the shadow. And he's like, okay, great. And then boom, with no prep, he was the shadow. So he was also That's in amazing. everyone's homes. So he was like this, he, it, we, he, it was his first movie, but he wasn't an unknown commodity. He was right. considered like a wunderkind. And so they wanted him to, Citizen Kane was not the first thing he, he wanted to do. There was a lot of projects that he almost made instead. He made, almost made a, um, a crime thriller called Smiler with a Knife that was going to star Lucille Ball, but the studio didn't want Lucille Ball because they didn't think she had star power, the idiots. Uh, he almost did. What assholes. <laughs> I know, right? He almost did. Uh, this, I, I read the screenplay for this once. It was incredible. He did an, uh, an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's uh, Heart, Heart of Darkness. Uh, in which the camera would be the protagonist. It would be all done in first person. And every time the camera, the person, the audience was, looked in the mirror, they'd see Orson Welles. Uh, which is a fascinating idea. It was a great script. Unfortunately, due to the practicalities of the era, due to the size of the cameras, it was just never going to be feasible. And there was even some talk I heard where they wanted him to do a War of the Worlds movie, but he thought it would look ridiculous on camera. It only makes sense in, in audio. Tell that to Tom Cruise. Tell that to Tom. Hey, they, they, they've done, been, done it a couple of times. They're yeah. both good movies. Uh, but uh, yeah, he ended up doing this instead. And um, yeah, he got Final Cut, which is unheard of in the contemporary studio system. I've only maybe heard of like one other filmmaker getting that at the time. Uh, and he was able to negotiate that really cool contract. And then when Citizen Kane became this controversial sort of flashpoint where the industry basically can we afford to piss off Hearst can we afford to even release this movie was a serious consideration he lost all of that goodwill right and then he was never able to get a movie done again exactly the way he wanted to 
starting with his follow-up, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is an amazing movie, even with it being chopped to shreds. They cut tons of material out of that movie, and they reshot the ending to make it... It's not a mega happy ending, but it's definitely happier than the ending that they, they would have had. And um, yeah, he was just on the outside industry forever. He shot himself in the foot. But there was a moment there where Orson Welles was seen as the next giant thing. He was going to be the next John Ford. He was going to be the next Charlie Chaplin. He was going to be something. That's wild. My whole, whenever I think of William Randolph Hearst, I think of Robert Duvall in Newsies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. love that movie so much. I love that movie too. I, love, I grew up watching that movie. I had no idea until relatively recently that Kevin Smets was in it. Me too! Uh, I love that so much now. I've listened to that soundtrack so many times. Um, it's so good. It's one of my favorite Christian Bale performances of all time because he's a horrible singer, but he's just he's in there. He's, he's, and he is just going he's for doing, it. He's doing fine. He's he's doing what Marlon Brando did in Guys and Dolls. Oh, and which I love is, that one too. I, I love that one too, but Marlon Brando cannot sing. No. He's doing his best. He gets you through the movie, and I like the movie as a whole. But there's a part of me where it's just like it would have been okay if we dubbed you, Marlon. It would have been fine, <laughs> just fine. No one would have known. We let no one complained when Audrey Hepburn was dubbed. It's okay. Just knock <laughs> yourself out. Yeah. Oh, Audrey Hepburn, I love her too. Nah, me too. Um, no, I it just it 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 is mind blowing what was done with Citizen Kane for yeah. sure. Um, cause again, you go and you, I start looking at the pictures and you see those ceiling shots where the cameras, in, they're actually like cut a hole in the floor They did it's to yeah. stand there so you can get that angle and everything has a purpose. And I think that's, what's really cool about this movie yeah. is every little thing that happens, every yeah. fade out, every, there's no accident. There's Nothing. no accident. I remember I was watching this once and I was thinking I was watching it with a commentary. I think Roger Ebert did a commentary and, um, he pointed out like a little thing that I never noticed before. I'm like, oh my God, everything in here is important. It's when uh, uh, Kane and Leland, his best friend played by Joseph Cotton, they first go to the newspaper and they just came out of college. They're best friends for life. Nothing could possibly tear them apart. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're walking through like the busy newspaper room and uh, they walk down the, you know, th- th- through the room and there's a pole just, you know, holding up the ceiling that they walk past and it cuts between them. They walk on either side of it. And Leland is so close to Charles Foster Kane that he backtracks and goes around the pole so the pole cannot come between them. That is such a little tiny detail. And it feels so natural. It doesn't feel forced. It feels like just something this kid would have done. And it's just so great. And then and then there's like, um, so there's a song in the movie. Uh, they're celebrating mm-hmm. Charles Foster Kane has purchased uh, the best news team in the world and they're all having mm-hmm. a big party and then a bunch of uh, chorus line uh, dancers come in and they do a song and the song is about Charles Foster Kane. Of course. There is a man, a certain man and then Charles Foster Kane starts doing the dance with them and singing the song and this is supposed to be a song that they did for the party and that's when you realize that asshole wrote the song. What? He wrote the song, didn't he? Oh my god! What a prick! Yeah. Like yeah. I just, I every movie is endlessly rewarding. Every single time I watch it, it, and I think having this conversation, it'll help me appreciate it even more. Because I, because when I watched it and when it ended, I, I kind of had that moment of like. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was it. Because again, it's one of those mm. things where you hear about it so much, so much, so much. Like, mm. how could it live up to the hype? 
of what mm-hmm. of continuing to hear about it. And there's been multiple podcasts yeah. that have covered it and people talk yes. about it all the time. And you can't multiple really documentaries get away from have been made. Yeah. Movies have been made. I'm, I'm curious though, because I want to talk to you because this is something that you had never seen before. Right. Had the ending been ruined for you, did you know what Rosebud was when you when you pressed play? I had no idea. Wow. Okay. See, I had it ruined for me as a kid by an episode of the real Ghostbusters. There was an episode <laughs> of the real Ghostbusters, this animated series in the 1980s, uh, in which uh they went to basically the Xanadu, the castle of Charles Foster Cannon. It was being haunted by this ghost who kept saying Rosebud. And then the end of the episode was, are we, are we allowed, are we allowed to talk about the, the very ending of the movie? The, we could talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Spoilers, and then at the end of, it's been out I, since 1941. <laughs> if, you were, if you were wondering, boom, we're going to talk about it now. And then at the end of the episode of the real Ghostbusters, they find out the ghost just wanted his sled and then the ghost plays with the sled. And that's really, really sweet. And I had seen that before I saw the movie. So I kind of knew it going in. And then you realize, oh, it's a sled. And you realize that the sled kind of isn't important, yet it kind of is. Because when you rewatch the scene, the only scene with the sled, mm-hmm. he's attacking the banker who's going to raise him with it. Right. It's not just a symbol of his innocence. It's also a symbol of him fighting back. You know, and it's then like the his, next thing we protector. see is him getting another sled and not wanting it. Like he wants his old sled, his mm-hmm. fighting sled. Um what it's was that my like for you? choice if i'm ever in a battle royale right? my, my fighting sled that would be great i would love if there was a if there was a schmodown fighting game i want a sled um did you what was your reaction when you saw that it was the sled did it did it click did it take you a second to put it together well I'm, i just want to know because I, I don't i don't get that i never got to have that <laughs> i i i was like when i saw the sled i went oh mm. okay and like the movie ended and I'm like, uh, and it, it, it was a thinker, right? It's not, like you said, it's not a sixth sense. He's actually a ghost kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, okay. And then you have to kind of think back to, like you said, when did you first see that sled? Okay. Mm-hmm. When did he start saying Rose? But it wasn't until towards the end of the movie where you, where you hear him say it after that kind of first line when he dies yeah, and he the first thing drops he the, the globe. Yeah, yeah. But it's, because it's after he tears apart the room and people are watching him and he feels like his it's clearly like his life had fallen apart and mm-hmm. then he finds that snow globe and he picks it up and he says rosebud and it's almost like he's looking at like that's where he came from that was just, and that was probably yeah, he, cabin. that that moment of like that was the happiest moment of my life mm-hmm. and he's spent his whole entire life trying to capture that happiness yeah and that innocence and was never able to and then not only that did he even know if he with all the shit he had in xanadu Mm -hmm. did he even realize that rosebud was there i don't think he did i think he had no idea i I don't i don't i i i think the exact same thing i think he had he kept buying stuff and buying stuff and buying things to try to capture that joy that he had from this thing you you know i honestly bless you i've honestly never really thought of that before the idea that the the idea that he might have had absolutely no idea that he owned it like it's just there somewhere in an attic and he has no idea and that just adds this extra layer of tragedy because it was right there the The whole whole time oh god he just had bought so much other crap you oh, it makes me want to cry. To, you're about to be the yeah. first one to make me cry on this. It's, it's <laughs> really, really sad. It's, it's really, really sad. really sad. It's a beautiful ending, I think. And and um, there's a there's a story with uh, with Citizen Kane 
that there is a plot hole in it. Okay. Uh, have you heard about this? This I have not. Some people have brought it up that the that there is a problem with Citizen Kane, and it's a fundamental problem to the story. And uh, the idea is that the movie says that Charles Foster Kane died alone. So who heard him say Rosebud? Oh. And I a lot of people put out, oh, you're right, the whole movie doesn't work. And I would like to say, for anyone who's listening who may have heard that, this is one of those situations like when people say that like Big Bang Theory, Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, where someone who half-watched Raiders of the Lost Ark came up with a theory and people just blonde uh-huh. it, even though it wasn't true. Um, I think that there's some people are taking the movie a little literally. Okay. When they say that Charles Foster Kane died alone. Charles Foster Kane didn't die alone. He had a room full of servants. His butler mm-hmm. says he heard him say it. Right. Charles Foster Kane died unloved. Which is he probably worse no, than dying alone. <laughs> I think it is. He died with no friends, no family, no one really to mourn him. He died alone. You can still die alone in like a bed in a hospital with surrounded by nurses or whatever. Right. I think that's what we're talking about here is he died a lonely, sad person, not physically alone. So I don't buy that that's a huge plot hole. I get that interpretation, but I honestly think it's more important to remember that loneliness isn't necessarily literal. Right. Um, you can be alone with not yeah. like just in, in everyday life. You can be in yeah. the biggest crowded room imaginable, yeah. but if, you feel lonely because you don't know anyone there or there's yeah. not someone there who knows you or it's empty. How many people know you? He's, he dies surrounded by people he pays to be there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's exactly. Not, that's that, that is lonely. And then, and even at the beginning when they show that big newsreel and here's everyone, everyone knew who Charles Foster Kane was. And after we see this five minute reel about all the famous stuff he did, there's a whole room full of shadowy men. Some of whom are played by actors who will appear later in the movie. Joseph Cotton is in there mm-hmm. playing a different oh, character, okay. but he's in shadow. So you can't tell. Um, none of those people, and these are all reporters have any idea what the guy was like. Right. They just know of him. They know what he did. They don't know what he what he felt. They don't know what mattered to him. They don't have. They have no idea whatsoever. It's wild. It's so yeah. and it and it's sad. And it it's one of those things where it's like even the comedic parts of this movie mm-hmm. are sad mm-hmm. because of what it means and what he's doing and what he's going through and what he's even when he's the charming brand new newspaper tycoon. I know. It's like he's being charming and he has his friends and the world is is yeah. falling at his feet. And he's, he's so he's and this is young Orson. He's in his twenties. He's charming. He's AF. and he's a and he's a snack. By yes. the way, he is oh. so damn sexy. Like oh, it's he amazing. Is. He wasn't a bigger mm-hmm. movie star. If you ever get a chance to see the version of Jane Eyre he starred in, I still consider it the best version. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, he is he is gorgeous and funny and yeah, you're right. People don't talk about this movie's funny. It There's is. a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of, of it's not just, this isn't like last year at Marion Bad, where it's like literally like just a riddle to be solved. And it's actually kind of emotionally distant and isolating. It's actually rich and full of character and humor and romance and tragedy. And this is kind of, this is just one of those movies and there aren't enough of them where I really do feel like you get everything. Mm-hmm. Cause it's kind of everything. Like the only thing that isn't in this movie is a car chase. And you could argue that it's off screen because that's how his wife and son died. So like it's kind of got everything. Um, And I think it's a movie that I I really do feel that, you know, a lot of people 
watch movies very passively. They watch movies to have things happen to them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that can be fine. I do that sometimes too, but Citizen Kane is a movie that can be watched passively, but if you're really engaged with it and you're thinking about it and you're connecting with the characters and you're trying to feel what they feel and imagine what they're thinking, it is so unbelievably rich. It's got, it's, it's a, it's a stew with like an infinite amount of spices that all go together well. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can just taste them all it's great and i feel like it's gonna be one of those movies where like i'm gonna wake up in the middle of the night thinking something about it i'm just gonna yeah. shoot up out of it and be like huh yeah. like the because you you can like you can it is one of those movies where you can watch it and understand what's going on and enjoy it as a film mm. but it is one that i think is why people kind of talk about it so much is there's so many different themes going on mm. and allegories to life and comparisons and meta- like there's so and they change over time like when you're young yeah. you associate with young or with young uh, charles foster kane or the younger people that he uh interacts with and when you're older you appreciate them more as you're older i've seen this movie probably at least 40 times at least five times in theaters and every time i do I, it feels fresh i get something else out of it it's just it's a it's a nourishing meal of a movie and i keep using food metaphors because i think i'm hungry I love that. Uh, I love food that. metaphors I love are my favorite kind of metaphors. <laughs> well, there you go. They're wonderful. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad I finally, I'm glad that I watched this film and I'm glad it took this project to get mm. me to watch this film because mm. a lot of these movies that I've been watching, I never would have watched if I didn't. My poor husband has been begging me to watch Tremors and Blade <laughs> Runner. And like, I like both those movies. <laughs> I love Tremors. Tremors is great. Trying to get me to watch so many movies. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And I've gotten a and and I've gotten a bigger appreciation for film since um especially in these last couple of years because of things like Schmodown and um everyone else that I've done, you know, doing stuff on on Flick and Reel on this channel that we're gonna be on with this with the audio podcast and talking with like my friends on there, Jesse and Sean, and yeah. it's given me a bigger, better understanding. I'm falling in love with people like directors like John Carpenter just for the practical effects of what he does. And does he have the greatest movies of all time? Some of them are. <laughs> I think some of them are. He's actually one of my favorites, but he's not all of them. He's no, not all of them. Like, but I think like okay. when I think of like the epitome of like a God tier practical effects movies, the mm-hmm. my brain now goes to the thing. And it never yeah. would have done that had I not have you sat seen, down and watched it. Have you seen Christine yet? I have seen Christine. The scene where the car fixes itself in Christine yes. is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen it's in any movie. Wild. It looks so good to this day. And it's all practical. It's just reverse. So damn good. It's so um, good. And here's what I love. Because I love what you're doing. And I jumped at the chance to join you for this. Because I love what you're doing. And I want more people to do it. Because, you know, what just watching whatever is convenient for you is fine and we all start doing that. It's when you start digging deeper, like I did as a kid and, and you're doing now, we're all doing whenever we get a chance to do it, that the whole like just universe opens up to you and you realize there's so many more things to love than you had any idea just because you're only focusing on what's out right now. And it never goes away. And even after you see a lot of the movies that are considered the timeless classics, mm-hmm. that's when you realize, okay, now it's time to get into the weird cult stuff. And now it's yeah. time to get into the weird chintzy stuff. Like I'm, I'm doing a project right now where I'm watching every single movie that stars Elvis Presley. 
I love that. He made maybe three good movies. <laughs> he's he's not he was not a great actor, and he most of his movies stink. But they're interesting. It's this weird yeah. snapshot of what popular culture was like in the '60s when he was his major box office draw. And these are movies that I probably wouldn't have had the patience for thirty years ago. Yeah. But now I've I've I'm at that point where just I kind of just want to see everything and i know i'll never have time to see everything but sure. i'll never see as much as i can unless i just start on the path and i love it when people are on the path i love it when people write into my podcast and say yeah i'm, I'm watching every single ingmar bergman film or i'm watching every single john carpenter or sam raimi film or whatever and i'm like this is amazing i love this i love that we're all on these journeys and we get to help guide each other along and it just makes me incredibly happy and it makes me feel like we're doing something right. So well, thank you for doing this and thank oh, you for inviting me. Oh, thanks. Me. I'm glad you joined me. And it's like, it. even like it, it blew my mind when I posted like a month ago, I was watching my first Hitchcock movie of all time. Like I've never watched a Hitchcock movie in my yeah. entire life. And I watched Rear Window and I posted oh, a picture so... of it that from, yeah. from like my TV screen. It's like, oh, watching my first Hitchcock movie and like, just put it up there. And it went viral with like 76,000 impressions. Like that's a finally, lot. It's a lot. It got yeah. like a thousand likes and like, that's great. it was wild. And it was something I never expected. Mm -hmm. And I finally learned three days later how to mute. Notifications <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I, it's, it's, it's very heartening. And I don't think we talk about it enough because you talk to a lot of people in the industry and they talk about only thing people want to talk about is what's new. They right. only want to talk about, marvel or star wars or whatever and that's not true they are maybe more casual people who will connect to that stuff but the people who really care about the art form of cinema and are really interested in looking backwards they're not a small number of people and they're very dedicated mm -hmm. and it's a great community to be a part of and Again, there's always a jerk out there somewhere, but mostly it's just like, oh my God, you're starting Hitchcock. That's amazing. And Rear Window is such a great place to start. That's one of my very favorite. That's seriously in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. I mean, talk about a snack. Jimmy Stewart yeah. and oh. Grace Kelly. Oh, Grace Kelly. Are oh my God, me? the camera loved Grace Kelly. I loved Grace Kelly. Well, who wouldn't? But my Jeez God. Louise. That scene where she just like tilts into the camera. She's like yes. climbing on top of him. That's just like, ah, uh, that's. Uh and it's like, That's of course, you hear about how much sex. Alfred That's, Hitchcock wow. was kind of a, a you know, a great piece of shit. It wasn't a great he person was a all the time. Yeah, yeah, he was a great. <laughs> but his movies are. But then after that, I yeah. ended up going and watching Rope. And again, mm -hmm. I'm enthralled in this movie, enthralled in the suspense. And then mm -hmm. the movie ended. I go, that was all one shot, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, he had to fake it because there was only so much room in a right. camera at the time. But yeah, it was a very, very clever film. And that's also... Um, that's actually one of the better examples of queer coding in movies because back during the production code, you weren't allowed to openly address queer characters. And mm -hmm. that was an attempt to, to do so as closely as they can without actually doing it. Um, yeah, so many wonderful Hitchcock movies out there. Um, and I hope you watch some more Orson Welles movies. Have you seen any other Orson Welles films yet? I have not. Um, okay. I need to probably put some more some more on my list. It's, um, it's tricky because, you know, again, he, it was, he almost never had a chance to work exactly the way he wanted to work ever again right so a lot of his movies are good with a but like magnificent embersons is good but they not only did they chop out i forget the exact number it's like 45 minutes of the movie and reshot the ending but they also burned the original footage so we'll never find it again well, so the movie go. is the movie is a frankenstein monster but it's still really really good but touch of evil is still really really great 
Um, let's. I'm trying to remember. F for fake is really brilliant. Uh, and 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 oh, and chimes at midnight is this amazing Shakespeare movie he did, where there's a character named Falstaff who appears in multiple Shakespeare plays. It's like Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, and Mary Wise of Windsor, and I think Henry the Fifth. And he took all of the scenes with Falstaff from multiple plays and created a new Shakespeare play that was all about Falstaff. And it's incredible. He made a new Shakespeare movie uh, with actual Shakespearean dialogue, all taken from the original text, and it's brilliant. That's it's a fantastic wild. movie. Yeah, it's so damn cool. He, he was a genius. I mean, it's it's one of those people you feel like you could say was ahead of his time with Very the stuff so. that he was doing. You know, yeah. um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad. Again, like I don't think if I watched this movie before setting up this project, I would have appreciated it mm. and really like paid attention. If I had just thrown it on, just say, "Oh, I've never seen Citizen Kane." People talk yeah. about, it, let me watch it. I'd have a completely different feeling. Yeah, you watch it passively. Right you're just gonna you're just gonna get an impression of it, but that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. but I wasn't bored, so that's good. Yay! That's <laughs> um, great. So, I guess with that, we'll kind of just start wrapping some things up here. Sure. Um, go ahead, and I think you know, I'm I'm just gonna we're, we're talking about doing letterboxed uh, uh, ratings, not full reviews. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe we'll get sponsored. You know, who knows? We're just throwing it out yeah, there. Talk maybe. about enough. Maybe letterboxed like, oh, we're listening. You're putting out good shit. Let's go. Yeah, here's fifty thousand dollars. Like... <laughs> Don't come back until it's all been spent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they're yeah. like, but you can't curse. Mm, I'm out. Oh yeah. Sorry, mm, can't do it. Um, mm. I and I'm trying to like when I do my ratings, doing them as like, yeah, what for like what the movie is like. I love Big Trouble in Little China. To me, that is a five-star movie I love that for movie. what it's doing, right? Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. it's just, or The Rock. Like, it's probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite Michael Bay movies. I, I, you literally have those posters behind you right <laughs> I now. I totally got it. Whereas I have a poster of Troop Beverly Hills and Premium Rush. Nice. Just off camera. Very nice cool. Stand, both Thanks. of them framed. Both of them loving Premium Rush. Is that the Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie? That, movie, that movie slaps. That movie is great. <laughs> And Michael Shannon should have been nominated for an Oscar for it. He is that good. I love Michael Shannon. I don't Me feel too. like he gets enough credit for how Not amazing enough. he is. Not enough. Um, but yeah, no, I, but I think for, for, I, I don't feel like I can go full five stars because I, I would probably need to give it another rewatch to understand mm -hmm. like all these nuances, but I'm, I'm happy sitting at four. I think it's a four-star film. It's your list. You can do whatever you want with it. It's fine. <laughs> this is where Bibbs decides he's never coming back. No, no, no. It's like, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like the way you're phrasing it is just like, it's like, is that okay? And I'm like, it's whatever you want it to be. If we had come on here and you had said you hated Citizen Kane, and I would have been very eager to find out why. I would have been very, very, because maybe I have been wrong before. I have, I've talked to people about movies I had very strong opinions about. And then when I saw their interpretation and I thought about it, I was like, oh, crap, that doesn't work, does it? So it stranger things have happened. So well, to be fair, when I first was coming in to do this episode mm -hmm. with you, like I was at dinner with my husband and my parents, and they're like, "What do you think about it? What did you think?" And I'm like, "It was a sled." And my my husband goes, "This is already, <laughs> this, this is already off to a great start." Nice. <laughs> but nice. then from talking, you start I start realizing the more nuanced aspects of it, and just start thinking about everything that I saw, and it's just like, yeah. It's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it was a sled. It's, it was a sled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got it. What? I figured it out. <laughs> Solved it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. And your sled. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, before we wrap up and, and get out of here, uh, mm. Bibs, which I've been calling you Bibs. Is it cool if I call you Bibs? Of course it's cool. You can call me Bibs. Cool. Everyone calls me Bibs. So glad I, I asked at the end of all of this. Hey, you're fine. I would have I would have stopped here. Like, uh, I am offended. Uh, William, Mr. Yeah, Bibiani, no. sir. Don't you dare call me Mr. Bibiani. <laughs> Bibs is um, fine. We're cool. Where can where can where can we find you? What you got going on? Okay, so uh, I write reviews for the rap. Uh, not not all of them, obviously, but you can find my work there. Uh, I also co-host the critically acclaimed uh, network, uh, which is a podcast network consisting of multiple shows hosted by myself and my uh, podcasting partner Whitney Seibold. Um, our shows on that network include critically acclaimed. We review new movies. Cancel too soon. We review TV shows that lasted uh, one season or less. It's a really great uh, sort of uh, trek through all of television's biggest failures. Uh, we also have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And we have a lot of exclusive shows there, including a show, if you were fond of what we talked about on this episode, a show called Only the Best, where we're reviewing every single film that was ever nominated for Best Picture in chronological order. And we're just about to hit 1948, wow, uh, which was the year... Cool. Uh, the Bishop's Wife and Miracle on 34th Street and Gentleman's Agreement uh, were nominated. So I'm really looking forward to having that. But we're doing that podcast soon. Um, we also have a show called All Our Yesterdays, where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek, also in order. Uh, we're just about to record an episode about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And then we're going to get back to uh, doing the rest of Star Trek Next Generation. Um, we have commentary tracks is there as well. We have uh, trivia nights that we hold with our patrons. So that's uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh we'd love to have you there and um yeah we also have a soap store with me and my partner m lapis da silva however uh because etsy changed it's uh uh they changed the the cut that they take out and now it's mm -hmm. much that it's not financially feasible so the store is currently on hold we're looking for a new place to host it hopefully it won't take that long but for right now salt cat soap which you can follow on twitter please follow on twitter Salt Cat Soap, all one word, for updates. But for right now, it's currently on hold. But we're going to find a new place for it real soon. Uh, so that's going on. But I also want to recommend uh, a book that uh, is... Uh, let's see, I'm going to make sure I get it right here. <laughs> uh, it, my, my partner, M. Lopez da Silva, is also a, a writer. Okay. Um, and uh, they contributed to a new book... Uh, called Your Body Is Not Your Body, a new weird horror anthology to benefit trans youth in Texas. Awesome. Uh, and, uh, all the, and the proceeds from it go to uh, organizations that are trying to help trans youth who have, you know, legislation is trying to basically legislate them out of existence in Texas. So this is a, a weird horror anthology. A lot of queer authors, including my partner, uh, have done a lot of different stories about the trans experience uh, in a horror, horrifying lens. Uh, and it's really, really great. And you can find it online. I believe there's a print edition as well. Uh, wherever you can find it, please help out. It would be really, really wonderful if you did. Thank you. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to link all of that um, in the sh in the show notes for sure. Yeah. So everyone, yeah. please make sure to go go check that out. And um, also, I'm, I'm at William Bibiani on Twitter. And the show is at Critic Acclaim. There. Perfect. That's it. I promise that's it. <laughs> um, and if you enjoy what you're hearing, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever audio platform you are listening to us on. If you are listening on YouTube, please make sure you subscribe, like, and hit the little bell for notifications. Anytime we have new content drop here on Flick and Reel, you'll be the first to know about it. And let me know your thoughts in the comments on Citizen Kane. Do you like it? Do you think 
all of us are insane who do like it. What what are your thoughts? Um, leave me suggestions on what films you would like to have covered on You've Never Seen It. You can follow the show on Twitter at Never Seen It FNR. And you can also follow me at Allison Salamone. And until next time, my friends, be safe and go watch the movies. <laughs>